The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to be with you again uh, this day. We are having a rough day in the market, so there's a lot to talk about. We've got some really interesting guests that I think can help shed some light into what is going on in the markets today. Uh, we want to remind you, as we always do every week, that we do have a special introductory offer to uh, three newsletters, the one that I publish called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, Trader Tracks, which is published by Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin's very excellent letter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York for more information on that uh, to sign up for the special introductory offer at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426, or you can go to miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Bonanza Gold, Eurasian Minerals, Prophecy Platinum, and Rye Patch Gold. I should mention that last week I was a guest on Stephen Iyer's show on Voice America Business Channel. Stephen's show is called Global Currency Watch. It's well worth listening to. Stephen is a professional investor who brings with him a great deal of expertise in the foreign exchange markets, uh, as well as a great understanding of markets overall. And his show is on every Thursday at 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, but as uh, is true with my show, you can download it uh, on a podcast as well. Regarding my own newsletter, uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, I rarely put out unscheduled alert messages uh, for my subscribers, but I did exactly that on March 15th uh, last week. Uh, and uh, let me just quote for you what I told my subscribers. I uh, said, I'm not a technical analyst, and timing is not my forte, but I follow closely those who do have skills in that area, and in my view, the warnings from seasoned analysts like Ian McAvity, Arch Crawford, Ian Gordon, and Robert Prechter are very clear. We are near the top of this cyclical bull market within the massive secular bear that still has much further to play out on the downside. I believe we will ultimately test the March 2009 lows and most likely plunge below that frightening level. In short, whatever upside is left the equity markets uh, in the equity markets, it is tiny compared to the downside risk, in my view. I remain bullish from a fundamental point of view with respect to gold shares and, to a lesser extent, silver shares. However, when the general market gets hit, shares of precious metals, mining stocks will get taken down, too. Building cash now before the uh, inflation in, uh, in the equity markets escapes the current Keynesian bubble should serve those who act now very well. In fact, the next leg down in a massive deleveraging process that I think still has a long ways to go should leave the fundamentals for gold mining and gold mining shares even stronger. Could I be wrong with respect to this call? I certainly could be. Neither of my two partners, Chen Lin or Roger Wiegand, uh, really are on board with me with respect to my time, at least with respect to the timing that I see. I, I believe that it's that the decline is much sooner than they believe it is. 
Uh, brave, smart stock pickers like Chen Lin make money because their very educated risks pay off over the longer run. His holdings of Mart resources have a chance, I think, to do extremely well. And it, I must admit, it's very, very difficult for me to sell that stock given uh, what I believe could be huge upside potential. However, if we are on the verge of the next down leg, then all shares, most likely, even those that are really, really solid, could get hit hard as well. Because when the deleveraging process takes place, you sell what you are able to sell, not necessarily what you want to sell. I do believe there could be some more upside left in this bull, in this uh, secular bull market within a cyclical bear. Uh, but it is already very long in the tooth. Uh, I hope that uh, that uh, that there is some upside left. In fact, I would like to see some more strength to sell into it. I'd rather sell and build cash in a stronger market than wait for the bottom to fall out and then not be able to sell. That's especially true of a lot of the junior stocks that we have that are that are very illiquid. Some of them are very very illiquid. So we want to be very careful about. Um, I think we need to be really careful about what kind of stocks we hold in this environment. And in particular, I think it's very important to own uh, gold shares. Uh, I'm focusing much more on the producers right now, the companies that have cash flow, that can stay in business, uh, that will be in a good position actually to pick up some very, very good properties uh, if I'm right and if the equity markets and the gold shares in general get hit very hard. So we generally, you know, people don't want to hear this bad news. We uh, we have a lot of people on this show that are negative about the markets. They're uh, well, by definition, we're not a mainstream show. Uh, if you want mainstream, you can just go to CNBC and all the major networks. They'll give you the happy talk that uh, is intended to keep people in power, in power, and people wealthy. The, the status quo, in short, to keep them where they are. Uh, but in fact, I believe that we need to look, drill down beneath the surface. Um, no pun intended here. We are uh, drilling down beneath the surface with these mining companies, that's for sure. But we need to try to understand what is really going on behind the scenes. So we do have a lot of very interesting people coming on the show today. We're going to be talking to Ian McAvity. Uh, Ian is known in the past for his work. Uh, well, uh, he was on Wall Street Week many years ago, and I was still a young man. I used to watch Ian. Uh, on that very high-profile show, uh, he was, a, was, and in many ways is still a very mainstream guy, but at the same time an independent thinker, a person who does his own thinking. He's not owned by people. Uh, he, uh, he writes his own newsletter. He does his own thinking. He does his own thing, and that's what we like about Ian. We want ideas that are original. We're not looking for ideas that come from the mainstream because, well, you get what you pay for. Those are free. Um, Ian has a very excellent newsletter. Uh, we're also going to talk to another fund manager, um, and his name is always very difficult for me to pronounce. He's a Dutch man. Uh, Gunenwegen is his last name. Hintz, uh, I think, is the way he pronounces his first name. Um, he lives here in New York City. He's a ma money manager, also a very independent thinker, and he's going to have some ideas also about uh, about where we're heading in these markets. We are looking, I think, uh, I believe that we're heading for some very difficult times. Of course, that's why I suggested that we, uh, that we lighten up and sell 75% uh, of our equity interest and uh, build cash. And I think in my model portfolio, we have something like about 50% in cash right now. We're still holding our gold and silver bullion, and we're uh, taking a short position, a small short position in the, in the financials as well. Um, Really, I don't see where the solutions are going to come from. We're going to talk to uh, our guests today about this further. But with respect to policies right now, I don't see where the where the solutions can come from. If anything, what is being uh, what is being proposed as a, as a solution is more of the same that's, that's led to the problem to begin with. Keep in mind that in a fiat currency system that has no backing, no asset backing, it is a liability system. So debt is the raw material from which money is created in a fiat currency system. So every time Mr. Bernanke goes out and prints trillions of dollars more debt, he's all of money, he's also creating trillions of dollars of more debt. So we're building debt, we're trying to fight a problem, fighting fire with fire or fighting debt with debt doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, gold is really the money that markets have chosen, have always chosen. And Doug Casey oftentimes has talked about this in the various conferences, and he sort of uh, quotes Aristotle, giving the reasons why markets have always chosen gold as money. 
Gold is durable. He says that's why we don't use wheat. Gold is divisible. That's why we don't use diamonds. Gold is convenient. That's why we don't use lead. Gold is consistent. That's why we don't use real estate. Gold has intrinsic value. That's why we don't or shouldn't use paper and even less so digital money. So those are the reasons the markets have chosen gold. The policymakers have decided not to use gold because they've seen it as a way of reallocating wealth from um, from the people that actually earn it. I like to say the people who create wealth are the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors. Those people are getting shafted. And and it's no wonder then that people like Chen Lin, our very excellent, uh, my partner and a very excellent newsletter writer, has decided not to pursue a Ph.D. Uh, in aeronautical engineering from Princeton uh, because the markets will allow him to make a heck of a lot more money because the engineers are not getting paid their just due. At least that's my view of things. And so the status quo is there, and we have many people on this show that help us understand the status quo. We talk to Ron Paul from time to time, uh, and we expect to have him on again in the not-too-distant future. G. Edward Griffin, who is uh, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, has been on. Daniel Estulin, Adrian Salbucci, uh, Dr. John Coleman is going to be with me again next week. These are gentlemen that have helped us understand and get a glimpse at who the people are, the powers behind the throne. Once you understand that, then bailing out the bankers starts to make a lot of sense, and you can kind of predict what's going to happen next. You just look at who is taking care of themselves, who are the people in power, and once you understand that, you realize why the middle class is being phased out uh, and why the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. We need to take care of ourselves. That's what we try to do on this show, too. We, uh, you know, we care a lot about the, the direction of our country, for sure, uh, but in the, bot- the bottom line is that we need to take care of our families. We need to keep uh, food on our table and pay our rents. So we are going to talk to Gregory Beischer uh, today. He is the president and CEO of Millrock Resources. That's a company that um, is a sponsor to this show. It's also a project generator company. That's the kind of company I think one of the, one of the models I think is least risky uh, for people uh, to invest in in this kind of environment. Uh, other companies like Eurasian Minerals, Riverside Resources, uh, those are project generators that I like a lot. Brent Cook talked last week about Eurasian Minerals. Uh, also, my favorite stock is Sandstorm Gold. These are companies, Sandstorm at least, is a company with solid cash flows that uh, doesn't, they don't need to go back to the market to raise capital uh, anytime uh, soon, and that is really a very, very good thing in this market, I think, because I, I believe we're going to be heading much lower. Well, coming up, we've got to go to a, to a break right now, a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Ian McAvity. Ian's going to talk to us first about a company that he's involved with, and then later in the show we want to talk to Ian about uh, his views on the equity, debt, and uh, precious metals markets. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian McAvity. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He's available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ian McAvity. Ian is uh, known to many of you, uh, well, from this show, but certainly uh, those of us who have been around uh, have had many trips around the sun. Remember Ian years ago uh, on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, and uh, Ian, even as a young man, had great insights into what was going on. But now he's uh, he's had a lot more experience, and I think he's even more valuable to listen to now than uh, than in those days. Um, during uh, always entertaining, always lots of very inform, uh, a lot of very inform, uh, valuable information to hear from Ian. So I'm really pleased to have him. Before we start talking to Ian, I'd like to mention that uh, he is going to be speaking at the Wealth Protection Conference that's on April 27th and 28th in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, I will be there as well. Arch Crawford will be there. Roger Wiegand will be there. Several other people that we've had on the show, or at least a couple of other people that we've had on the show from time to time will be there. Well worth considering, I think, uh, going to this event that is once a year. It's Pat Gorman's show. It's the Wealth Protection Show. And there's a telephone number you can call to learn uh, or to sign up and to register to go to this show. It is 800 4149. And so should mention that Roger Wiegand has a one-day uh, seminar on the 26th there that you can also uh, sign up for. Call that number, 800-494-4149. Welcome, Ian. It's really good to have you back. Hi, Jay. Really good to have you. You know, um, we, we want to talk to you a little bit about a company that you're associated with in this segment, and then after we come back, uh, get into the markets and the bigger picture. But there's a company called Duncan Park uh, that you were involved with. I've got it uh, with 93 million shares outstanding, selling at about eight cents a share, seven and a half million dollar market cap. Um, does that sound about right? That's that's right. I, I inherited the presidency of the company about uh, a little over three years ago. Uh, I was a, it was the only junior company that I was a director of. The president had a stroke and. Basically, I had to completely reconstruct the company, uh, get a, basically get a new property and uh, new financing. And the the property that we end, that we've ended up rebuilding the company on is uh, about 2,000 acres, right in the heart of the Red Lake Gold Camp in Canada. Uh huh. <clears throat> you know, well, and I know, and, and I know that you've had some good assays uh, coming out of there too. Some at least some interesting ones. Let's just put it that way. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But I should mention to our listeners, of course, that you are very much, I guess you are the founder, or at least you're very much involved with the uh, uh, CEF, the Central Fund of Canada, and, and a gold fund that's uh, very similar. Like the CEF is silver and gold. And, and what's the name of the gold fund? Well, we did uh, Central Fund of Canada. Basically, I launched it with Philip Spicer in 1983. Philip had a small fund previously for 20-odd years, and we converted it uh, to the original stock exchange tradable bullion fund, holding a, a physical mix of gold and silver bars in Canada. <clears throat> then in 2003, we launched Central Gold Trust, which is now, I think, a little over a billion dollars of bullion, again, held in Canadian banks. 
And we also have a smaller one called Silver Bullion Trust, which is the same model but holding physical silver. Mm-hmm. And between the three of them, they own roughly $7 billion worth of physical gold and physical silver, all held in Canadian banks, essentially outside of the conventional system. Okay, well, that's uh, so I, I wanted to bring that out in party in because uh, your involvement with this tiny little microcap company uh, is certainly not something that you've spent most of your life doing. You've been involved more, I would say, more in the big leagues than, than in, in the uh, single-A miners, I would say. Well, I was, I was involved in the exploration business for a few years in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time vowing that never again would I get back into the penny <laughs> dreadful market. <laughs> and, uh, but Duncan Park was being run by an old, old friend of mine who was, even though I was not on the board, he was using me uh, as if I was still the chairman of his audit committee and reviewing all of his contracts. And then basically, uh, when he told me he was moving a drill onto the property in Nevada, I said, oh boy, maybe it's time I become a director. You just might get lucky. And then uh, within about six or nine months later, he had a stroke, and uh, six or seven months after that, he died. Yeah. Just in time, just in time for the drill holes to come in blank and the treasury to be empty, and a legal dispute unfolding with the joint venture partner. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knew when to act. I spent a year cleaning it all up, and then sort of rebuilding the company after that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great task, and and actually, you know, it's people that do these tasks that build these companies, and and once in a while, you find one that really makes a great discovery. Uh, that's that's a, a contribution, I think, that um, is beyond what most investment bankers do. But let me ask you, with respect to your properties there, you mentioned you're in the heart of the Red Lake District, which is a prolific district. Of course, it's where the company maker for Gold Corp is. It's a really rich, high-grade underground mine. Your company owns has an ownership there, but what is its ownership interest? Does it have a, a, a complete interest, or is it joint venturing? Well, we, we we basically we're just in the process now of completing the expenditure requirements to earn 75% of one property package and 100% of the other half of the property or the other third of the property package. Uh huh. And I think I think the the drilling program we've just completed on the ice literally last week. Uh, I think that that completes our spending requirements, but I just haven't seen all the final bills yet. But we're that mm-hmm. close to it. We spent roughly $2 million over the last two, uh, two years and a bit. Okay. Well, I noticed that you had uh, some reasonably good uh, drill intercepts, if I'm not mistaken. It was something like uh, 12 grams over uh, four-tenths of a meter. I mean, that's a sniff or maybe better than a sniff. What, what can you tell us about? That structure well, and you know what what is the target? What's the target well, size here that you're looking at? Basically, the bulk of the claims are on a trend that runs parallel to the main mine trend, the east-west mine trend that Gold Corp is on. Uh-huh. We're about four kilometers due south of it on a structure that's essentially known as the Chikuni River. That's where the Chikuni River flows out of Red Lake, uh-huh. and that trend runs parallel to to the the main mine trend. And it also intersects with the north-south trend that dates from between uh, the original Madison Red Lake mine that uh, is now being drilled by Claude Resources mm. and runs all the way up, in some people's minds, runs all the way up to the Gold Corp area. Mm-hmm. And in essence, half of our claims are out under the lake, which is where we were drilling recently. But last summer, we basically identified a, a, a mineralized trend along that zone it's about, based on 15 drill holes, we could identify it as being roughly 1.2 kilometers long hmm. and about four, uh, 1.2 kilometers long, 400 meters wide. And we had several really interesting little high-grade hits through it, but we don't understand the structure yet. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, so we know it's a mineralized zone. We know it has some, some very interesting little gold spots on it. There was one, I think there was one little hit. It was a sort of a fraction of a meter as well. It was almost, I think it was 23 grams. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't know with something like that. You may have taken the whole, <laughs> that may have been all the gold that was there. Yeah. You, know, you just, you can't, you can't really tell. But to, for a junior explorer to find a previously unidentified mineralized zone in the heart of a gold camp, I think is pretty exciting stuff. 
It is. It is exciting, uh, Ian. And of course, uh, that you have gold mineralization and this, you've got the structure. You don't know how thoroughly it's mineralized. And I guess the big, the big issue always for a company like this is, you know, how much is it going to cost and how much dilution are you going to have to undertake to, to finance the drilling? Yeah, that's, that is the major challenge because there's no, there's no question that the, the exploration business is just hugely capital intensive. As I say, to date, we've spent roughly $2 million. Uh, we've just completed four drill holes out on the ice. I have no idea what they were in, but we got the drill, we got the drill off the ice about 24 hours or 48 hours before the, before the ice was starting to break up. We, we had hoped to drill six holes, but the, the warm weather just kill, killed off any prospect of doing the last two. Ian, and now uh, we'll focus could back you tell this us summer. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we'll focus back this summer uh, going back onto the land to see if we can get a better handle on the structure of the zone that we identified because we, we really don't understand the structure yet. Uh-huh. Well, this is exciting, and it sounds to me like you are in elephant country. It's not to say you have an elephant, but the uh, the structures you're talking about, as I understood what you were saying, the possibility of something at the uh, at the intersection of two main trends, one north-south and one east-west. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, and well, we, it would we certainly just, seem to be uh, highly prospective, point. especially we now won't, that you... We won't be able to drill the intersection zone again now until next winter when the ice comes back in, and hopefully we get better winter conditions because this year the ice went out or started to break up way too early. Ian, it's always important to know who your technical people are. Could you tell our listeners something about who your team is, your technical team uh, is, you know, who, who are you using as consultants to help you well, out here? I, well, well the, I've got two directors uh, who are quite well-known. Uh, Larry Cornsey, sure. who's the director of several junior companies, was the co-discoverer of the Gold Strike Mine for Barrick in Nevada. And then I've also got Dave Shadrick, uh, also from Reno, Nevada, and Dave is a former president of the, I think, the Nevada Geological Society. Or, you know, the, he's a professional geologist with a long track record of working for ma- on many projects. And our project itself has been managed uh, by the option ore that we're earning into by a fellow by the name of Gordon Ewell, who, ironically, I financed a company that he was working for back in the 1980s when he was huh. working for, for Canamax, which was a division of Amex Gold in Canada. And Gord, Gord's been an absolute gem of a, of a, of a manager. He's brought everything in under budget. Well, in this business, that's rare. Oh, it is rare, absolutely, and it's it's very very important to shareholders. Here's a question for you that I think is one question that investors should always ask, and that is, what about the management? How much of this company do they own? Uh, basically, I own about eight or nine percent of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Another director, uh, uh, Eric uh, Eric Salzberg, who's the senior vice president of Fairfax Financial, which is a very large company. Uh, Eric is uh, somewhere around ten percent. I've got a group of friends in in Florida that own close to twenty percent. Another group of associates up here that own about twenty five percent. Basically, it's been the same group that have done each layer of financing. Mm-hmm. So even though there's 93 million shares outstanding, I could probably talk to probably 65% of the stock in a half a dozen phone calls. I think it's always important to know uh, from a shareholder's point of view that their interests are aligned with that of management. And certainly you're going to have some dilution as you have to raise capital. How much money do you have in the bank now, and are you in the process of raising more in? I will I will be. I had hoped to close the flow-through financing, but I just got word this week that it's probably not going to occur. But I haven't seen that in writing yet, so it's not been, you know, it hasn't been formally announced. It may still happen. But uh, in terms of money in the bank at the moment would be fairly thin, partly because I don't know how much we've just spent on the program. Yeah. yeah it was a $400,000 program. We know it came in under under budget. So I'll be doing, I'll, we'll be doing additional financing sometime within the next 90 to 120 days. Okay. Uh, can, you know, Canadian flow-through financing for junior companies tends to come a little later in the year. So I'll be looking, I'll be probably looking to the market somewhere in the June-July period for, to fund a summer program when the ground dries out. All right, Ian, if there are listeners here who are accredited, is there some way that they could plug into this and possibly get some, you know, we're, we're, we're wanting people to be cautious and aware of the risks inherent in a deal like this, but there are also enormous upside potential, and some people who have the wherewithal and are accredited investors may want to take 
take part in something like this? Is there is there a way they could do that? Uh, well, basically, Duncan, it's, if they can search it on the web, they can find an email address for me. Okay. That's probably the best way. It's Duncan Park Holdings Corporation is the full name of it. Uh, we have a symbol on the OTCQX, you know, the higher level of the OTC. Yeah. And, and the symbol in the U.S. is DCNPF. David David Charles Park. Uh, wait a minute, David Charles Norman Park and uh, Ford. DCNPF. Yes, exactly. And your symbol on in Canada is DHP, I believe. Uh, DPH. Right. Oh, DPH. Park, okay. DPH, well, there I go yeah. inverting things again. All right. Well, that, that's good, Ian. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. It's, it is a very interesting, it's highly risky, but it, it uh, definitely would seem to have some potential exploration, uh, potential and speculative appeal for, for some investors, perhaps, and uh, it is of interest. I'm, I'm looking forward to following this in the future. We've got to go to breakdown when we come back. Uh, Ian, we want to talk to you about the markets, mm-hmm. equity markets, the debt markets, of course, the precious metals markets. So, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Ian McAvity after the commercial break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, Ian McAvity. We talked to Ian right before the break about a company that he's associated with, uh, Duncan Park Holdings, and it is a company, certainly it's a highly speculative story, but it's one that would seem to have some uh, some potential. And uh, you never know. I mean, the, you don't get the, the high returns without the risk, although uh, our policymakers are continually trying to tell us we can have our cake and eat it too. So uh, in any event, Ian, uh, welcome back, and I'm really glad that you're with me. I want to talk to you about the uh, equity markets for... Uh, and the precious metals markets, but you know, the last time we had you on the show, you thought that the Dow would ultimately test the lows of March 2009. Do you still think that? Uh, I still do, Jay. It's, uh, it may take a while to get there, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see those lows again, probably in 2013 at this point. Uh, Bernanke just keeps pumping the market up. But, uh, you know, you can only exhale for so long before you have to inhale. Yeah. Well, so 2013, we might uh, go back and revisit those lows, but what about in the meantime? I know in reading your most recent missive, your most recent uh, monthly letter in March, that you are taking a pretty dim view of the equity markets right now. Do you think there's another level we might we might descend to and then rest a bit before so, bouncing up and then going down to the 2009 lows? 
No, very much so. I, I do. I expect to see the Dow probing down into the eight thousand, eighty five hundred range. Uh, and based on the cycle top from a year ago, even though we've made higher highs on some indices, but based on the on the May of uh, eleven, uh, May of twenty eleven top, that projects down to sort of the August September window for on an average uh, cycle basis would be somewhere between eighty two hundred and eighty four hundred on the Dow, mm. which is sort of interesting because that would be right after the Republican convention and into the heat of all the lies that you're going to be told between August and November mm-hmm. on the election and. Uh, I, I could envision I can envision all sorts of fireworks occurring at that point. Could be really interesting. Uh, you think it makes a difference uh, which person the Republicans nominate? Um, well, I'm not sure who. I'm not sure. I, I, as I watch this leadership contest, I'm convinced it's being run by the uh, the Obama administration. It's, <laughs> it's the most bizarre leadership race I've ever seen. Yeah. And yeah. it's uh, the problem is all three of the leaders are basically they're all the same big government uh, Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron Paul's the only honest guy in the race. Yeah, and the media are studiously ignoring his presence, but he's I think he's contributed a lot just to reminding people of every single time they appeared on television, reminding them that there was a concept of liberty in which the United States was founded. Yeah, indeed, I couldn't agree with you more on that, and I think. Well, the the media ignores him, uh, but that doesn't mean he isn't popular. I think that uh, the very fact that they keep him down essentially and and, uh, don't allow him to win anything sort of, well, at least, you know, one of the arguments is, well, he can't win anyway, so let's not get behind him. Let's just vote for the lesser of the evils. And so then you're left between the three dunces basically um, to decide which one is the least worst and uh that seems to be the, the modus operandi of the establishment. Well, anyway, getting back, uh, politics, of course, but, um, you know, return to liberty and free markets, which is what we're talking about, because increasingly the government is, uh, our government is being interventionist. Uh, and, Ian, you and I have been around long enough to see a trend in this direction, a very, a very discernible trend away from freedom and liberty and more and more towards intervention. We see it with Bernanke printing money, um, you know, you see everywhere you turn, more regulation, et cetera. But um, so so you think something like 8,200 or 8,400 long about the election time, boy, that would really rock the markets. That would really uh, shatter some some people's dreams, wouldn't it? Well, basically from current levels, that would be akin to a crash of some sort. And what what the, the precipitant will be for a crash, I'm not sure. But uh, certainly the rhetoric focused on uh, Iran, you know, whether something comes out of Israel or whether the U.S. gets involved. Uh, but I'm also very concerned when I start seeing threats being made by the U.S. administration against India. Hmm. India and China need oil from Iran. And uh, when the U.S. starts talking about taking sanctions out against India, when they talk about exchanging gold for oil, Mm-hmm. Iran directly and you know, America threatening sanctions on India, that's starting to get you know awfully trade protectionist and could really I think it could mobilize India and China uh, to essentially tell tell America that uh, you're not going to be quite as important to us in the future going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the U.S. position in the in the rest of the world with all of the threats that are being sort of issued directly and in and indirectly. I don't think the American level of influence is as great as Washington would like to believe, and I think they're doing a lot of harm to the reputation of America. Right. Well, it, it certainly would seem so, and I would guess that uh, when it comes to another a nuclear power, Russia, they would also be um, certainly not on our side and probably would be willing to team up with China and, and India with respect to opposing U.S. policies in, in Iran and elsewhere. Well, particularly because Russia's uh, primary export is energy to Europe, and uh, the Russians would very much like to participate along with the rest of the world in uh, in seeing higher oil prices. Mm-hmm. Well, those are geopolitical things that certainly could could you know could rock the world, could really cause a lot of damage in the in the equity markets. There's no question about that. 
but you certainly have talked about you know things that are sort of less speculative in many ways because we really don't know what policymakers are going to do when it comes to foreign policy. Well, I guess you can say the United States is going to continue to to, to saber rattle. It's going to continue to try to you know threaten people with war. Uh, countries with war, uh, but we can look at some uh, economic issues. And you, I'd like to ask you, you know, about some of your technical. You know, you're a technical analyst, but I, and I want to ask you about uh, some of your fundamental views as well as you know why you're so bearish on this equity market. Um, but uh, let me, Jay, if I could add one other that yeah. might be called geopolitical, but I regard it as financial. The other. Yeah, you know, potential element of negative surprise that could precipitate a crash would be the presumption that somehow or other the Greek problem has been resolved. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily been resolved, and I think that Portugal will be lining up, and there will be renewed pressure on Portugal, Spain, and Italy, mm-hmm. and even possibly French banks. I, I think Europe is basically an accident looking for a place to happen mm-hmm. in the financial world. And to, to the extent that the U.S. financial institutions are intertwined, and, I, and I'm, you know, you have to assume they are to a great extent. Else, why would would Bernanke have uh, basically given a two trillion dollar loan recently? It was it was characterized as a uh, as a swap, but in essence, it was really a loan. Uh, you know, the Fed was was questioned. Uh, Bloomberg won a lawsuit and and required the Fed to disclose who they had lent money to, which banks they had lent money to, after the Lehman Brothers. Uh, d- default. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at this time, they apparently just shoved money into the EUB and let them dole it out to individual banks to try to. So this whole thing is inter- intertwined, isn't it? And th- no, very much, very much. So the, basically, I think we're in, I think we're into what I would call the second half of the 2007 to 2009 crash. Yeah, uh, they bought they bought a respite that I think is in the process of topping out, and I think that it's going to start getting ugly again. And I, I was amused uh, in the last day or two to hear them people talk about the fact that Bank of America is out of the woods because they now have a double-digit stock price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just because they got Bank of America above $10, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Well, I, that, that is, uh, I think that would be a view that I would share as well. Of course, we're constantly being bombarded with uh, people that, uh, that say otherwise in the mainstream media. Uh, Ian, you know, you mentioned that you think we're only halfway through this thing, uh, this deleveraging process, I guess, is what you mean by that, right? Mm-hmm. So if I look at the debt-to-GDP ratio chart, you have a very excellent chart. Um, and, and before we go on any further, Ian, uh, let me ask you, I want you to just tell our listeners where they can where they can access your, your work. Um, they just, should they just Google Ian McAvity? Uh, probably the best is just Ian McAvity or deliberations uh, with Ian McAvity. Uh, and basically that'll take them to a website that's provided by my primary chart supplier. I don't operate a website of my own. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, the, the point is people should avail themselves to your service. Uh, Ian's been around uh, quite a while, Wall Street Week fame many years ago, and he puts out an excellent newsletter. It's one I wouldn't. I want to be without, and I'm looking at a chart, a debt-to-GDP ratio chart, and Ian, when you say we're halfway through this thing, as I look back at this, I see a range of debt-to-GDP during the more normal times, um, up until until we started really rising up until the mid-80s or so, uh, a debt-to-GDP ratio that ranged between about 125 and 175 or something Mm -hmm. like that. Then it took off, and now we're looking at you know 386 percent, 3.86 times debt to GDP, and we've come down a bit from the top, but not by much. So I would say we certainly haven't come anywhere nearly ha- half the way down to that range of say 175 on the upside. So when you say half, um, could it be worse than that? Oh, it could it could always be worse than that. But bear in mind also that you know the debt to GDP ratio has got two components in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to try and inflate their way out of the thing, basically fighting deflation with inflation, mm-hmm. and you probably end up with a mix of both. Yeah. Uh, how far down the debt to GDP ratio will come, I don't know. Uh, but for example, when I hear the the Europeans proposing that they they're, they're going to get everybody down to a 1.8 ratio because they think that's sustainable, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, put it this way, what they're calling sustainable is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, what's going to happen, for example, to the GDP? You know, on the deflation on the deflationary side, that's where the, that's where the real risk problem comes into it. Mm-hmm. But on that longer term pattern, really from 1952 to 1981. That was back in the days when people borrowed money to build something to repay the loan. Yes. And then we got into this, uh, the era of funny money. And in essence, from 1981 to, to the peak of that ratio in 2009, you essentially had 30 years of debt-financed consumption mm-hmm. that enabled everybody to have what I would call an artificial, artificially high standard of living. Mm-hmm. And that's now rolled over. Mm-hmm. And with the weakness of the financial institutions, you know, the Joe Sixpack consumer is not borrowing money to go out and spend. The the only debt expansion underway now is coming from government. Yes, yes. You you uh, you show an excellent le- uh, an excellent chart there that shows exactly that the total uh, debt, and then um, you know Joe Sixpack is not um, is not is not really participating now. He can't he can't he can't uh, he can't pay us back. He can't pay the banks back. Do you see a parallel between what happened, uh, what we're told and read happened in the 1930s and what happened now? Because certainly the banks are flush with cash. They're pumped. The financial system is at least pumped full of uh, steroid money. Mm-hmm. Well, so, but the banks, you know, it's like the pushing on the string analogy, is it not? Very similar to that? Oh, there's a great, I think there's a great deal of that going on, and particularly in Europe. It's even worse in Europe because no, the banks won't lend to each other. They'll only lend, they'll only, they take money from the central bank and then redeposit it with the central bank to get the spread to try and reliquify themselves. You've got something similar to that going on here in the U.S., but there you've got the Treasury issuing bonds to Wall Street and then the Fed buying it back from Wall Street. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on balance, you know, once at some stage here, Bernanke's going to have to take his thumb off the scale mm-hmm. because you've got so much of the U.S. debt owned by foreigners. Yes. And, you know, I, for years I've always told the story the story about, you know, the, the investment banker from J.P. Morgan or, or Goldman calling his Chinese counterpart, you know, to announce, you know, we're doing a $10 billion issue of 10-year notes next Thursday. How much would you like? And the Chinese counterpart comes back and says, "Oh, sell ten ten billion for me too." <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, at some point, the foreign holders, the U.S. bonds, are going to suddenly become more aggressive sellers. And you know, one way or the other, I, I, can, I tend to watch the five-year rate because that most, I would say, most typically approximates you know the average maturity of U.S. of the overall U.S. debt level. Yes, and at some stage you're going to see the interest burden on the U.S. budget just multiply by a factor of four or five. You're going to have something well over a trillion dollars in interest payments sometime in the next couple of years, and it just—it's almost an impossible situation. Well, that's—that's—I don't know what we're taking in now, but that sounds like a very, very big number. I don't know what the what the government's revenues are right now, but. It's uh, it's not a great deal more than that, I would guess. <laughs> it, it'd be, it'd probably be in excess of fifty percent of the tax revenue base. Yeah, that's that would be incredible. Well, you know, Ian, we've had uh, a Gary Schilling on this show a, a couple of three, four weeks back, and Gary is a deflationist, and he sees the bond market as a good place to be because of that. And you know, but I'm I'm wondering to what extent this bond market has is down and the rates are down i should say the rates are down the bond markets are the, the, you know the market is up why the rates are so low now in spite of the fact that we have this huge savings gap from consumption and is it um is it is it just the treasury buying is it the is it the us treasury or bernanke buying uh, treasuries it's a con- i would say it's a combination of the banks buying the bonds from treasury and holding them as well as bernanke's buying mhm you know, in in essence, uh, you know the it's the liquidity is being created out of thin air that it's not flowing down, it's not flowing anywhere near Main Street. Mm-hmm. You know, this is purely this is purely a way of re, you know essentially of reloading the banks to go out and create another bubble. Yeah, well, they're creating another bubble now. I would think it is a bond bubble, if anything. I mean, if is that what you see now? That's, a bond? Absolutely, that's that's the ultimate bond bubble. Uh, perhaps the, the one place where I would uh, maybe differ with Gary in the sense of you know he he would he he, he he would think that that U.S. Treasury bonds are the highest grade paper on earth, 
I'm wondering at what point the rest of the world is going to decide that they're actually junk bonds. Mm -hmm. And I say that particularly because of the Greek precedents. You know, they keep saying that Greece is alone by itself and, you know, forcing people to, to accept a 53 cent on the dollar haircut. At some point in time, I can envision the U.S. debt getting to a point where it has to be haircutted somehow. Yeah. Now, I think Bernanke would like to do it via inflation, but uh, you never know what might come out of an accident. Yeah. So what could trigger this uh, this need to allow interest rates to rise then? I mean, I mean, I mean if Bernanke can, can simply go out and buy the treasuries, why can't that go on indefinitely? Uh, well, it could go on indefinitely for as long as people consider the U.S. dollar to be a currency. Yeah, and uh, you know there there comes a level there comes a level of infinite money printing, where suddenly you discover you you've become a Zimbabwe. You know, I, I don't know that they're headed in the direction of that kind of uh, you know sort of you know Weimar type inflation or money printing, but that's the direction that they seem to be headed in. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, whether they can actually pull it off, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, if you think of it, in the past year and a half, we've had this really very active debate as to whether or not the euro will survive. Yeah. You know, because of the, will there be a breakup of the European Union? And yet the dollar can't rally that much against the euro. Yeah. You know, it's it's really quite there's there's quite a remarkable divergence going on. I you know I think the dollar's the you know the best looking horse in the glue factory, but uh, I don't like buying horses in glue factories. Yeah, I guess that's the issue. You know, uh, when do people lose confidence, total confidence in the paper currency system, the global monetary system as a whole? I mean, certainly we're seeing inklings of that with people that are not all that with with countries that are not all that friendly to the United States, like China. Like India, like like Russia, that are saying and suggesting that the IMF needs to be restructured, that we need to have a new monetary system, that we need to go somewhere else. But at some point in time, I mean, it, it was true that the Germans, uh, of course, uh, in the Weimar Republic, there you the problem they had there was that they had all this debt that they owed to the rest of the world, right? So they tried to print their way out of that. That's how they tried to, to pay their debts. Is that, well, is that and, and, well, bear in mind, in, in, you know, after World War One, they were saddled with huge reparations payments that they couldn't possibly meet, so they just deliberately destroyed their currency. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, you know, it, 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 I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that uh, we're headed fully in that direction, but that certainly would seem to be the direction we're headed in. And you know, if you've started on that road, I don't want to envision how you get to the end of it. Yeah, you know, I don't want to see that. I mean, I think the worst of all worlds is a hyperinflationary world. Well, the likes of a, a Gary uh, uh, Gary Schilling would say that we don't print money in the United States. Uh, Zimbabwe prints money. We we put money in the banking system, and it has to be lent out. And I guess to the extent that, I mean, if we, you and I talked about this before, and I think you you said, and you sort of made a crack about, well, if they really wanted to get the U.S. economy going, uh, I mean, if they really wanted to stimulate demand, they should. Sh- Take their helicopters over Walmart parking lots and, and shower, you know, trillions of dollars out on the people on the on the public at large. But oh, I, um, I, I I made that comment the the week that they announced the TARP program that they were bailing out Wall Street. Yeah. And I basically said if you drop it in Walmart parking lots, that money will get into the economy. Yeah. But unfortunately, they're using a very narrow funnel for all the money printing, and it's going straight into the banks to bail them out. Yeah. Well, which is why we on this show have talked about, uh, you know, who are the powers behind the throne, who are the people that call the shots, who owns the Fed and that sort of thing, because it seems clear to me that, uh, you know, the, the establishment is going to take care of its own, and uh, that, that would seem to be what's going on. Well, what about, uh, how is this going to affect gold then? Because there definitely are, you and I have talked about this, definitely powerful deflationary forces i mean if the mar- if the government stepped aside we'd have one heck of a deflationary environment i think would you agree with that uh, well you you have a you'd have a deflationary environment in terms of asset values mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the coin you're also getting into a climate in which you can in, you can almost envision competitive devaluation yeah you know, the re- part of the reason the us dollar has not rallied more against the euro is the united states does not want the strong dollar that they profess to want. Sure. And you know, when you look at when I look at the money printing that's gone on, there's a I, I, I show a list in a lot of my talks of 15 countries that are outside of the the G7 group, 
that since the money printing started at the end of 2007, they've accumulated a little over $3.5 trillion of excess foreign reserves. And those foreign reserves at the moment are predominantly denominated in dollars. But I think China particularly has been converting dollars into oil reserves. They've been converting it into copper. Uh, they're taking advantage of low shipping rates. Uh, their oil imports in the month of January, when everybody was talking about China slowing down, their oil imports in the month of January were at a new record. Yeah. You know, and basically, is, you know, I think they're hoarding the oil because they, they've got tankers to store it in, and mm -hmm. I think they're just converting their dollars into oil. They're converting mm -hmm. dollars into gold and into copper. Into stuff. Yeah, they just basically convert paper into, into tangible. Yeah, interesting. So the demand, so we could have artificially high commodity prices now, uh, and and then a heck of a bust in the future, though, if if, if things really... Uh... Oh, exactly. Well, I, I, I've often used the analogy that we've got both inflation and deflation. Definitely. You, know, you, you and I both started out many, many years ago as young bankers, and as a young banker in the 1960s, in the early 60s, you know, I recall everybody sort of had a savings account and a checking account. Yep. And the way I, the analogy that I would draw is that deflation will destroy the savings account, but the currency turbulence will in fact inflate and destroy the value, destroy the value of the checking account by rising prices for things. Yes. Well, that, that I, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. You've got a slow economy, and um, two weeks ago you had a record high euro oil price. It certainly seems example. to be uh, happening now, definitely happening now, Ian. Uh, the commodity prices are going up. The economy is sucking wind. The middle class is being basically destroyed and put out of existence, and you have a, a very small rising upper class, and it sounds and looks so much like what we've read and what's taken place in Latin America and banana republics in the past. But let's talk, we talked about the equity markets. Do you think we're going to see a bond market turn then in the not-too-distant future? Uh, it, it, it certainly looks as though the bond market is starting to flirt with, uh, you know, putting pressure on Mr. Bernanke's thumb. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there are going to be several false starts. I remember the other extreme back in 1978 to 1980 when interest rates were topping out. You know, they made several spikes in both directions in, in building that top. Yes. And I think, I think we're into that kind of a phase now where we're going to probably see a couple of false starts where, you know, suddenly the 10-year the and the 30-year will jump uh, and then be, you know, not, will jump and yield and then get knocked back down by Bernanke and, and his friends. Oh. But I, I think that uh, they may yet they may yet put a lower low on it because in a stock market crash environment, uh, partly because of margin requirement coverage, uh, in a in a crashing stock market, people buy treasury bonds. Yeah, and well, you, know, it's, you know Gary could yet be right. You may well see, you may well see the, uh, the the bond market make another another leg to an even lower low in yield. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Ian, unfortunately, we're out of time. Got to ask you, though, before we go, what's your target for gold? How soon? We're, uh, uh, my next guest is going to talk, I think, about a $1,200 gold price target. What do you see for gold on the downside? I think, we, I think we've got a pretty good bottom around the 1600 level, and I'm, I'm on record of expecting to see $2,500 before this year is over, wow, which okay. obviously would be tied to you know, some sort of a financial event that crashes the stock market. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Ian, unfortunately, we're out of time. Folks, you want to follow Ian McAvity, Google him at Ian McAvity, that's M-C-A-V-I-T-Y, Deliberations, uh, and sign up for his excellent newsletter. I do it. I enjoy it. Not only enjoy it, it's essential reading. Folks, we got to go now. We'll be right back after the, uh, after the commercial break at the top of the hour uh, with our next guest, uh, Heinz Gunenwegen. I know I butchered his name, but we'll get it right when he comes back. We'll be right back. Don't go away. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters 